Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium. It's the Payments Professor here, Kevin Olson. And on the Payments Podium, as you know, we try to get people from all areas of the payments industry to come and take the professor's podium to give them a chance to be able to discuss the hot topics of the day, to be able to show their expertise and be able to talk about their experience and what they've been able to see and what is happening around the industry when it comes to payments. Now today, I've got a special guest, Kevin Sasser. Kevin is the Director of Strategic Initiatives with Argos Risk. Kevin is going to be talking to us about an experience with the FBI. I kid you not, an experience with the FBI. In fact, we're going to be titling this podcast, We Have the FBI Online Too. Now, Kevin's got a couple of decades of experience when it comes to working with electronic payments and in the banking industry. And again, I am really looking forward to it because he's going to be able to tell us some things about origination fraud. He's going to be able to tell us some of the things we should be doing when it comes to risk management. And as you know, in the format of the Payments Professor, we start off talking about the past, what it is, what's gotten us to where we are now, so we can talk about the present, what's happening in the industry currently, and I know with origination fraud or fraud in general, there's a lot still happening, and then the possibilities. Kevin will leave us with a little bit of commentary on what it is that he sees as far as what can you do to be able to protect yourself against origination fraud, and maybe even some trends of where origination fraud may be going. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Kevin Sasser, Director of Strategic Initiatives with Argos Risk. Good morning, Professor, and thank you everyone for uh, taking the time to join our podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm so glad to have you, Kevin. I mean, again, I just love the title of that. And I've seen the sessions for some of those out there that may have seen you at conferences. Uh, You're a great speaker. I I really enjoy, you know, your sense of humor. And just seeing the name of the title, we have the FBI online too. I mean, I can't even imagine what that had been like. And since we do start off talking about the past, could you maybe help us all understand a little bit more about what is ACH origination fraud or just origination fraud in general? Oh, certainly. So basically, origination fraud is uh, transaction origination that's done under false pretenses, where the ODFI is under the assumption of about an originator on what their business is, what their financial stability is, what types of transactions are. And there's an element of deception involved in the mix that's usually originated by the uh, originator. And so, for example, uh, we have, we work with uh, clients today that uh, think they're originating, they thought they were originating for, let's say, a payroll company. And through uh, analysis of the system and actually just go into Google Maps and, you know, pull up their office building, you see a big check cashing sign on the front window. That's the, that's the typical, prototypical originator fraud right there. So basically, it's you have a business comes into a financial institution says, I want to start doing origination with you. And you come to find out after vetting them that they're not who they say they are. Exactly. Yeah, that can be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there's multiple levels to that. And we'll, and we'll uh, the course of the podcast, I'll give you some concrete examples of uh, either that's happened with me personally or some of our clients that, uh, that gives you some groundwork on the fastest you need to check in your ACH origination program. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, having, I, I guess you could say I grew up with ACH. I started my career early doing a lot of work and uh, even uh, – 
uh, support centers and taking calls. And I would hear some of this stuff and I'd be like, really? How in the world did that happen? And I know in the early days of ACH, especially ACH origination, somebody could just walk in off the street. They'd fill out like a piece of paper form and suddenly they're set up and allowed to do ACH origination. So I could see where a lot of this fraud stemmed from those early days. And Right. In, in fact, my uh, I put myself through college working at a community bank, and um, I was I was the data disaster recovery person. I got to take the mag tapes home, and that contained all of our data. And at the time, and we're talking the late '80s, early '90s, ACH origination. If you could, if you if you could figure out how to load that file into Fedline, you were an ODFI, and you're ahead of most others in your space. So it was a rudiment. Terry, uh, beginning. Uh, usually the bigger banks uh, had the, the budget and the technology to do it properly, and the community banks were forced to play catch up. And they were using uh, hope, prayer, and an Excel spreadsheet, to coin a phrase, uh, to, to manage everything that was flowing through their terminals. So that, that's where it kind of started to take off in the, the early 90s. Wow. And you said that you could share some personal experiences and stories from this? Oh, most certainly. Uh, where to begin? Um, so, <laughs> you know, originator, originator fraud, and I'm going to spend the bulk of this uh, conversation talking about uh, the originator itself, but it can, it can happen on multiple levels, even on the recipient. Uh, one of the, the first frauds I, I got to see firsthand, and I, I think I need to share a bit about my background. Uh, I worked for a technology company back in the 90s that uh, produced origination software, and our clients were banks and credit unions that were involved in, in, in payment origination. And we did a lot, I did a lot of consulting, a, a lot of uh, public speaking, and I got to see the front lines of ACH origination. And one of the first frauds I saw actually happened on the recipient side. Uh, the originator was originating corporate transactions uh, through the ODFI, and, uh, you know, for cash concentrations, but unfortunately, they were sending them out as consumer. They were, instead of coding them CCD, they were coding them as PPD. And I don't know how this particular individual in South Georgia learned the, the regs, but he walked into his bank one day and he would he had a he had a uh, account full of corporate debits totaling quarter of a million dollars. And he realized that they were PPDs because it actually printed on the statement. And he said, um, hey, I'm revoking the authorization on those debits. I want my money back. This is a scam which it, it was a totally legitimate um, uh, transaction. And the bank was enforced by the regs to give him a quarter of a million dollars. He walked out and off he went. And the uh, the poor originator who sent those, who did nothing but code the wrong code uh, had to eat quarter of a million dollars. And so it, it, it the fraud can be happen in multiple points, but back on the, um, the originator side of the fence, the origination fraud, uh, you you basically have two types. I think you have companies that start off as fraudulent, where uh, that uh, is a, the genesis of my story in the FBI. But you also have those companies that started off as good, noble businesses, and through a series of an unfortunate events, are forced to become fraudulent in an effort to save their business. And that's and that to me, that's the more dangerous ones because it's. Uh, you know, it's, it's the people, it's the clients that get into your circle of trust that have an event that uh, forces them to make some bad decisions and you're totally caught off guard because it's like, oh, that's our, that's our familiar customer. I, I recognize the pattern. I feel comfortable with them. So we're not going to do that due diligence that we should have done. Those, those are the opportunities where you're putting yourself at a, a substantial risk of loss. 
I have to agree because when you do have that trusted customer and you've done your, your due diligence and they start, you know, you start seeing an increase in what they're doing, you think it's a good thing. And you don't always realize that just because there's an increase in activity, that doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. And I, I've, I've preached that to financial institutions for years and they just always overlook it. Right. It's, because, and, and this comes back, um, and I, I'll use this kind of a segue into our, our, my FBI story. So the, the quote from my session uh, actually happened. The, I, had, I was working uh, in a startup in Atlanta, and I'm in, a, in the middle of a conference uh, room, and my secretary or assistant breaks into the room and says those words, Mr. Sasser, the FBI is online too. <laughs> and, and I can tell you right now, Kevin, when you hear those words, your day is not going to get any better from that point forward. I mean, it's just going to go straight downhill. And that was, um, and that was the case. Uh, the FBI had called me because two years earlier I had run a transaction processing company mm -hmm. and, um, we had onboarded a fraudulent originator and it, this was, uh, and on the amount of fraud that actually my company experience was not that significant, but the fraudster itself, the fraud, it was a fraud team to tell you the truth, uh, was pervasive. Uh, they went across state lines, which got the federal authorities involved. Uh, the FBI had tracked them for months. And then two years after the fact, they're calling me coming to testify. And so that's, that's so, when you- Wait, get, wait, two years later from something right. you had done previously, it, you still get pulled into I, I think that's something that is huge just to realize in itself. Exactly. So let's, you know, I'll give you a point of reference. Kev, uh, a professor, what did you have for lunch last Tuesday? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. So then, okay. So then when, so when the FBI is sitting there talking to you, okay, on two years ago, you originated this file for this much money. How in the heck are you supposed to know what you, what happened two years ago? Right. But this is, this is how justice moves. This is the pace of justice. And so one of the things when I talk to, uh, uh, banks and credit against and ODFIs is like, look, assume that you're going to have to remember these events up to day five years from now. Wow. Just build build your processes, build your reports so that when you get called in, if you ever get called into a, a courtroom, you can look at your logs, you can look at your uh, your notes, you can look at whatever documentation, and you can speak with a level of authority because that's what's going to be asked of you. Yeah, that definitely shows the importance of having good processes and definitely good reporting too. Exactly. So the um, and so I want to talk a little bit about process because. Um, you know, when it comes to risk management, risk management is in general kind of the, I'm going to use the term redheaded step, a stepchild of, of, of strategy. In fact, uh, and, and for now Argos Risk as a company, we work in 30 different industries. And so I get to see risk levels from different takes, different angles, different industries, different use cases, how, how risk works in healthcare versus how it works in financial services and all of that. So it's a, it's a really unique position to be in. Mm -hmm. and, the, and people are like, okay, how do I improve my risk management? And I actually say it, it, it really does start at the top. And that's not a frothy statement at all. It really does start at the top, and I'll, and I'll give you an, a concrete example around that. So there's a, there's a bank out of uh, South Georgia. They're just outside of Savannah. So I'm, I was speaking at a conference, and I was uh, talking to the head, head of uh, operations. She goes, yeah, we had a situation. She, we were doing, they're doing uh, origination for a payroll company. And so it's, it's uh, Friday afternoon. 
the, the file shows up on time and it's a payroll company and there's 30 companies in that payroll file. So the, the, so think one payroll company, but 30 of their clients and their employees are in this ACH file and they get the file by 11 AM, which is standard protocol practice. So next step in the standard protocol practice is for someone to confirm that file with the originator. Some money has to, from the bank, has to physically speak with someone from the originator. And so they called the, their primary contact, no answer. They emailed, no answer. They text, no answer. So they went to their second contact, same result. Third contact, same result. Fourth contact, same result. And here it is, and it get it, they're pushing the deadline. It's 15 minutes before they have to originate that file. And if they don't originate that file, in the next 15 minutes, those people are, aren't going to get paid on time. Right. So they had to make the call. Now, Professor, what would you in, do in that situation? Well, payments professor, with my yeah. experience, I'm not about to process that file, but real world, if I think a real world, I put myself in other people's shoes and you're under the pressure of, you know, knowing hundreds of people are not going to get paid. And if you've ever been in a situation where a payroll file didn't get out and it was your fault, that's not a situation you ever want to be in. I got a feeling I would probably process the file. So would I. I mean, I'll flat out, and people, and when I when I put this exercise out in live audiences, I can tell by the facial expressions those people who have never been burnt. Mm -hmm. Because the ones who have never been burnt will look at me on a judgmental way. How how could you not? How could you originate that file? And the ones who have who've been in banking a long time or who who understands P and L, who understands customer relationships, look at me and just give me that little nod that goes, "Yeah, I know where you're coming from, buddy." And so the end of the story is they didn't originate the file. And so, and I applaud them for that. And the only way that was possible was because there was a strong culture at that bank that empowered that executive to make the call that says, I'm willing to put the needs, our, our needs of the bank from a risk mitigation standpoint above the needs of a customer relationship. And that was strong. And her, their, her board backed her up, her president backed her up, and she didn't, she told them what was happening, but she didn't have to go make a big presentation because that's the thing about risk decisions. Number one, mm -hmm. they're very rarely black and white. They're always gray. And number two, you never have enough information to make a complete analysis. And number three, you never have enough time. Sometimes you have to follow your gut and your gut. If your gut says, you know what, the president's going to back me up. Uh, if I have to pull the plug on our best customer, that's a strong risk management culture. Unfortunately, that is more of the exception than the rule. And so that kind of transitions back to my story. Because um, the, my, my company, as a third-party payroll processor, excuse me, as a third-party ACH processor, that was the only way we generated money was transaction processing. We didn't have loans. We didn't have NSF fees. We didn't have anything else. We had all of our fees were, our, all of our income was generated by transactions. And so we were in a, it was a turnaround situation um, where the, the company was starting to go downhill. So I was brought in and I, I did the standard playbook. I, I, I cut expenses, reduced overhead, bought on some new relationships, started moving uh, revenue in the right direction. So my, uh, I had my plan, I was executing on it. And then the, the, and I, I had a supportive uh, group of investors and a supportive executive team but we were all focused on growth. 
99% of our conversations were around growth. What are you going to make your numbers this month? If you can make your numbers, that's great. We can expand. If you make these numbers, you can get a bonus to your team because they were all working at probably 20% below market at that time because that's what you do in a startup. But never did we have a conversation around risk management. And so the way my fraudster came into my life, it came through uh, a trusted partner. And again, this I'm go, you're going to see here's some consistent themes. So I had set up some uh, part business relationships with other companies uh, that we partnered together. So I was their back end ACH processor. So think of a credit card processing company who wanted to add ACH to sell to their customers. Those were my partners. Mm-hmm. And I had one in particular that had passed me 20 good leads, 20 good customers that were absolutely perfect. And so when he passes me number 21, what do I have? I have an expectation they're going to be just as good as number 20. I have an ex- it's, it's from a trusted source, so my guard is already down. And then, which are two warning signs, and then the, the, the big one, I, and I got to share the pitch with you. So my mindset is, um, okay, we got to get growth. If we get, if we get to this revenue number, then uh, the investors will kick in more money, and we can grow this into a bigger company, and blah, 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 blah. And then I get the call from a partner and my partner says, Kevin, you're not going to believe our good luck. I have a whale on the, on the line. Yeah, whale meaning a really big account. Uh-huh. And he's basically saying, look, I don't mean to get you excited, but we're looking at uh, a customer that could be generating a half million dollars a year in revenue for us. At the time, my average customer relationship was generating about $12,000 a year. Wow. So we're talking a whole new level. Now, Kev, you won't believe this. Okay, so they are, this company is a hot new nutraceuticals company for the elderly. So these guys are going to help the baby boomers live to, to be 150. Wall Street is going nuts. The, the top capital banks are lining up to take them IPO. And once they go IPO, uh, they're going to go from a half million dollars to a million dollars a year in revenue with us. You excited yet, Kev? Oh, I am. I'm ready to yeah. process. Right. So a couple of things. And so if if you're if you want to take one key term away from this podcast, there's a, a word I want to I want to share with you. It's or it's two words. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is just a human condition where we we want to see the things we want to see. And so in, in, if you ever have a, a, a relative or an uncle who's overly political at the holidays and spouts off a view of the world that you just cannot understand, that's a perfect example of confirmation bias. You see the world as you want to see it. In my situation, my confirmation with bias was, okay, so I'm under pressure to generate more revenue. If I generate more revenue, um, uh, we can hire more staff. We can, we can really build this company out. This could be a million-dollar client. If we make it to a million dollars in recurring revenue, I this is going to be huge for my ego. I'm going to be on the cover of Forbes. Um, just as a point of reference, Kev, only 4% of companies, only 4% make it to a million dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm sitting there thinking, I'm my, my, my executive credentials are about to be sealed in silver. So I'm ready to go. So my confirmation was really high. Oh, and by the way, the, the kicker toy is like, oh, back to the pitch. By the way, Kev, uh, they're uh, they're ready to move quickly. They're growing so fast. They could be. They want to be up and running in the next three weeks. Of course. So, 
Okay, so let's think about, let's, it checks all the boxes. It gives me revenue, it gives me revenue pretty quickly. I can get, I can make my numbers this quarter. All there is, and there is not an entity, there's not a bone in my body that wants to say no to this. And so this is, this is how risk starts. Number one, it starts with um, your needs and wants. And, and so my needs and wants were exactly laid out right before me. I needed money, I needed it quickly, there it was. Now, a couple of things. Uh, you notice I said nutraceuticals for the elderly. Mm -hmm. So I want to focus on the word elderly, the most vulnerable population there is when it comes to risk because they were already, uh, supposed to be debiting the elderly that defeated one of our safety guards because the, the, the older names, if you, if you ever seen names from like the twenties, the thirties, the forties and fifties, they're not like names today, right? You have like, you know, Fiola and, and Neva and stuff like that from the older times where today you might have Britney's and Hillary's and, 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 and Blaine's. And so we, we already knew it was going towards the elderly. And so because they were supposed that was supposed to be there, we didn't get alarmed by that. And they were absolutely masterful in that. So when I, I talked to uh, banks and credit unions and ODFIs, uh, especially uh, at conferences, I basically say, you know, before you get so deep in the weeds, Take a look back, bring it, bring it all the way back. And I, and I share the story of uh, the bank in South Georgia. Like, number one, does your culture at your bank have that level of support from a risk management standpoint? Because if you don't, then you don't need to be that aggressive in your payment strategy. Because where I, where I see ODFIs getting sideways is they don't have the risk management structure, but then they'll hear stories like, Oh, if we bank payday lenders, we can make hundred thousand dollars a year per company. Let's go in that direction, and 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 when that happens, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. I gotta agree, and the, like one of the things you said too, we had the safety guard of elderly, and as soon as you start making exceptions, that's where things start to fall apart. You know, in the in the deep south, there's a uh, old joke that says, you know, most guys in the South die right after they say the words, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> right. In, in payments origination, the, the expression is, but they are a good customer. <laughs> because every time you have a problem, it's never with a bad customer, uh -huh. right? It's always with a good, and they are a good customer. And then the next words coming out of that are usually something that is, Hey, let's, so let's, let's do an ex exception to a process. Let's not check something. Let's not worry about it because that nomenclature, th those words just before that, you know, because they're a good customer is supposed to solve everything else. And so I tell people, it's like, you know, number one, check your culture. Number two, um, you know, you're, let's follow the great words of Ronald Reagan, you know, trust, but verify, mm -hmm. you know, I, if it's the daycare center at the local church, that's great, but they still need to go through due diligence. That's the way, it, that's the way the world should work. And it should. Now, now I, I am dying to know a couple of things though. The okay. bank in South Georgia, did they, um, what was the repercussion that happened from that? Was there anything, I mean, I'm assuming they didn't process the file. Was the file supposed to have been processed and they just couldn't get anybody? So what had actually happened was the, the originator, the payroll company was having an offsite strategic planning session that, that was led by a facilitator and it's common practice. So the facilitator said, okay, everybody turn off your cell phones. Uh -huh. So you had all the executives in one room and everybody is off the grid and they had totally forgotten about that verification process. 
and the and so the bank president called the president of the company and said, "Look, uh, you know, it's in the file. The, you, you, the terms of you know the validation process did not take place. We were unable to send the file. We deeply apologize." And the president of the payroll company called the bank president back and said, "Hey, we apologize. We didn't live up to our end of the agreement. We had totally." forgot about this. We will take the hit for this. We will send out a communication that says it was our responsibility and we will make it right. Wow. And so the, yeah. You know, I love to see that there's still integrity in, even in every area of the industry nowadays or still now. Okay. But with your story, the FBI yeah. is online too. How did it end up at the end? <laughs> Okay, so this is the part of the podcast where you're going to start thinking less of me, because I just let you know right now, because this is, and I, I want to back up just a, a smidge of why I started telling this story in the first place, because uh -huh. the events I'm about to share with you are absolutely true, and, it, and for the longest time, I treated this as the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me professionally. I did not talk to it about it. I didn't, uh, I felt like all the, my company had to be shut down, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Wow. Um, all the people who trusted me to come work for me lost their jobs. The people who recommended me for the position, I felt like I let them down. And so I, uh, I, I had never been at a lower point in all my life after this, all this unfolded. And then I had the good fortune of, of coming to Argos Risk, and I was drawn to it because, and, and this is not a plug per se, but this was sort of a, a redemption uh, play for me because I now help banks avoid the mistakes I made and why I started telling my story. And this story in particular is because when I started doing research, uh, I found that number one, when it comes to originator fraud, nobody talks about it. We can, you, you Google uh, card fraud and you'll have reams and reams and reams of paper. You, you Google originator fraud that is uh, done by originator or the ODFI, nothing, crickets. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, you know what? If no one's going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. Because I have people come up to me after my sessions, after, especially when I speak live, and they'll tell me stories. And, they'll, and it's the exact same stuff we did. Um, it's just, you know, there's a little twist here and there. So, so back to my story. So I, I'm in the middle of onboarding this big honking company that's going to make me the next Steve Jobs of the payments world. And I get a phone call. So we're about 90% done. And I have, we, and don't get me wrong. And uh, Kevin, I think it's on my title, but I'm an AEP. I'm actually an AEP for life. I'm a permanent AEP, um, which is, means, which means I'm old, but for also means for a while, I know how the ACH network works. I can tell you, I can talk to you about temporal risk and temporal peak risk and all that until I'm blue in the face. Well, and that means too, for people who are listening who don't understand a permanent AAP, the only way to have gotten a permanent AAP was to have taken the AAP test when it was very first offered. And from what I understand, because I didn't take it then, but from those who did take it then, it was one of the hardest tests to prepare for because you didn't know exactly what you were preparing for. It had never been offered before. So they did hit you with every aspect of the industry, just like they do now. And I'm really big on being AAPs and accredited ACH professionals. So uh, I, I do got to say it's kind of an honor because I believe you're the first guest who's a permanent AAP on the famous podium. Oh, well, I I feel, I feel proud. So as a permanent AAP, uh, I knew what I needed to check from a, uh, a standpoint. I knew the risk at play. And so I 
you know, we had we collected financials, we collected letters of credit from the bank, we had uh, account statements, um, and it was a smaller company, and um, so we couldn't. When we pulled a credit report on them, there wasn't a lot of detail about the company, which is very common. And so we went back to them and said, "Hey, look, uh, we're going to have to ask the president of the company to pull." Uh, that person's financials and sign a personal guarantee. If something should go south, we're coming after you, uh, the, the president. And they agreed, and we pulled the financials of that individual, and um, it looked it looked fine and all that jazz. And so we're about ninety percent done. We're we're heading into the home stretch, and I get a phone call, and it was Bob. Let's call. And I'm making up these names. Bob from the company. Hey, Kevin, uh, we're very excited about the start relationship, but look, I've, I just got some news. Um, good news, bad news. Good news is the investors are moving up their timetable. So we're going to, we're going to go IPO two quarters earlier than we planned. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. And so in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to be a million dollar company before the end of this calendar year. This is going to be awesome. Number two, but um, look, I've got to accelerate our relationship. So I've just put a file on your server that's got about, it's worth about $10,000 in fees to you, but I need that thing to go out tonight uh, because if we miss our numbers, if we're, if our billing is off by one cent, everything just gets delayed and we just can't have that. Right. So we got a lot of eyeballs on us. I know, I know we're, we're making, we're making you go through an exception, but we, this has to be done. And if you can't send that file, then uh, I've got other people who are willing to send it for me. And uh, I thank you for your time. I'll say, so put yourself in my shoes after that conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, and this goes back to a risk culture situation. So if, if just like the bank in, in um, South Georgia, I'm talking, that I was talking about, if I had, if I had the same culture, am I going to say I'm, I, I would have done something differently? I don't know that for sure, but I know at the culture at the time, I was not motivated to say no, because if I had said no, everything that we had been working for was put in jeopardy. So now, Kevin, as the payments professor, you know that a 1% return rate on a debit file is considered pretty high and that you should treat that with kid gloves. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I'm not proud of the words that are about to leave my mouth, but we got 30% returns. Holy crap. <laughs> and that is, and, and because this is a family friendly uh, podcast, I'm going to say I said the same thing, but in reality, it was a little bit more intense than that. And that, and so we immediately pulled the plug on everything. We shut it down and, and, and yeah. And then, but our through, and there's some details that happened that I'll, I, I can't share on this podcast, but at the end, end, end of the day, um, uh, our ODFI, who was this, and to give you the time frame around this, this was 2008 uh, time frame, and our ODFI. So we had an ODFI that was one of the big banks that disappeared in 2009. Uh huh. So, and so we, so basically, once we had this situation, our ODFI said, "You're out." They 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 cut us off, shut us down, kicked us out, and so that was the end of our company. Um. So in retro, so then two years later, the FBI calls me, and they basically say, okay, and and do, and do the postmortem. It turns out that every piece of information that I had received from that company was made up. So the financials were fiction, the letter of credits were forgery, 
the president, remember the president of the company that pulled the, the, the credit the report on? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, she happened to be the girlfriend of the link ringleader. And the way she became president was that the ringleader would basically give her a, and he did this three times with three different women. He, uh, he would give his un, uh, unknowing accomplice a company as part of their relationship. It's like, well, you know, I love you so much. And to, to try to, you know, solidify our bond, I'm going to give you this company. I'm going to put my company in your name. And they'd sign away and, you know, sign the, the paperwork and all like that. So we were looking at a person who did not know there was running a fraud uh, who had good credit. And so, wow. right. So I had it. So there was multiple pieces in play. So I had an unknowing co-conspirator and fake financials. If you have fake financials and an unknowing co-conspirator, you can defraud just about any financial institution in the United States. And so, um, I go to, I get called into federal court. We testify. It turns out there were 30 of organizations like mine that had got defrauded. So it wasn't just you. Luckily, no. they went after, well, not so no. luckily. But was, there were others that shared in the misery and made the same mistakes, I guess you could it, say. Exactly right. It was a series. It was a series. They would just, and they, and they would stack them up. So they would be working three to five transaction processing companies or ODFIs, banks and credit cards, at the same time. And as, as, and so, and this is a, a, I call it the good company, bad company uh, fraud play is that as, is when you start the relationship, you're the good company. Uh And then as you get deeper into the relationship, eventually you're going to hit the the moment of knowledge when you realize this is a fraud and they're going to drop you, but they'll have four others lined up right behind you to keep going. One of the mistakes, and this is, uh, and again, this is the part where people are like, I can't believe you did that. Or, or I can't believe you'll admit to that. Uh, in our haste to get them signed up, and, and we never did a Google Street image on their office building. Hmm. We did after the fact. And when we did after the fact, we found that 150 employees of this company, uh, the, the, the head world international headquarters was a two-bedroom condo in Miami. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so it's... You know, that's, that's, that's originator fraud in its bare essence. Now, is this a common uh, event? No, but it's a significant event if it happens to you. Because I've seen this happen. It, it's usually not fraud. It's not companies that start off as fraudulent. It's companies that earned your, got into the circle of trust because you talk to the majority of ODFIs out there, especially community banks, they'll say, well, we, you know, we, we only service our loan customers and to be a loan customer, you have to have a relationship with one of our loan officers. And, there, and there's this, it's like, and you got to know somebody and you get, and you got to get past a sniper on the roof. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a long series of lines, but at the end of the day, if you have a company and, and I'm going to pick on some industries right now, if you have a company and the ag space, you have a company in the auto industry right now, you got any, you got a company in any of the industries that are being impacted by the ste- uh, the tariffs, steel industry, you have mm-hmm. a company that's under financial stress right now. If you have a manufacturer, uh, their raw material costs have just gone up by 20% and they can't hire the people to actually produce the goods fast enough, you got a company in financial stress. So they might be in your circle of trust, but that doesn't mean you need you don't need to check on them. 
Oh, I have to agree. I mean, and I think a lot of it too is you get blinded by the dollar signs. You get blinded by, hey, we're making money off of them. And you are mm -hmm. until you aren't, until you start to bleed it and start to lose it. And you are absolutely right. Somebody can turn bad overnight. I know in my personal experience, I had a fraudulent case that I ended up doing some work on back when I worked for a software provider. And it turned out that the owner of the company had passed away. And the son-in-law took over the company, you know, keep it in the family. Son-in-law is now going to be taking over the company. Well, what wasn't known to the family is the son-in-law had done time for check fraud before he had met his current wife. And can you imagine what happened when he finds boxes of old checks that the previous or the owner who had passed away had stored in the back? And this was a company that had done wonderful, wonderful, was a blessing almost to the bank until the son-in-law took over. And I, I think in your situation, seeing the 30% returns or knowing a lot of those who are out there listening when it comes to checks too, you realize you don't always see that impact of when they've turned bad right away, but you're on the hook for it. And sometimes, you know, for months, if not years, because of the repercussions of once the flood of the fraud coming back starts to hit you. Exactly. And it's, and you don't realize the impact that it has not on your customers, but your people, your staff, the overall character of your organization and your reputation. And so it, it does come into play in the, one of the, uh, one of the sessions that I'm doing now uh, involves uh, it's a session called how to defraud a, a financial institution in three easy steps. And I talk about this, uh, this, uh, auto dealer in uh, Texas that is it's in, they went bankrupt last year and there's fraud allegations that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars and it's it just it's just a bad situation and I'm giving this presentation in Orlando and I have a, a like three people in the room who are hanging on every word I'm, I'm saying like almost finishing my sentences and I'm like what is going on here and it turned, and then after the, the session's over, the, the people come up to me and it was three nice ladies and they just about had tears in their eyes. And, and they were saying, thank you so much for telling that story. And I'm sitting there and it, what it was is they were from that area of that car dealership and they uh -huh. had had to deal with the customer fallout because there were, there were consumers that had traded in cars that didn't get paid off that were now getting delinquency notices and our credit was being wrecked and like that. And there, there was tears in their eyes because it's like, we've been working around the clock trying to, to make this right or, or to help our customers like that. And we just wanted somebody else to tell the story, make sure someone else knew. And it, it was like, it was like almost like a, a traumatic event had happened to them. So yes. So originator fraud, again, it's not as common, let's say, as business email compromise and like that, but when it happens, the impact on your organization is incredibly significant. Wow. And that was how to defraud financial institutions in three easy steps. I think I've seen that session as well. And I know you said that's one you currently do. If our listeners were to say, go on LinkedIn and look for Kevin Sasser with Argos Risk, would they be able to find you and maybe find uh, the events where they could see that session live? Uh, that is a good question. Yes, they can find me, Kevin Sasser at Argus Risk. I'm the only Kevin Sasser in Atlanta, Georgia. Love to connect. Uh, I actually have to update my calendar uh, for the second half of this year. I I'm speaking, my next two conferences are going to be the Cornerstone Credit Unilings ERM conference in August, and then the Association of Financial Professionals or AFP conference in Boston, I believe, in October. Okay. 
Um, all right. Well, that that is really a lot of the past and the present. And we, we like to wrap things up, giving people hope. And that is talking about what can you do? And I, I, I think actually you did give hope because I've gotten a lot out of this. I mean, I, I've learned, you know, that, that saying I've heard so many times, you don't know our customers. Our customers are good. Well, they're all good until they aren't. And the, the level of transparency in the success cases that are being there too. But I would ask, as we're moving forward in payments, and we're seeing now faster payments are coming. And I'm telling everybody, faster payments does not equal faster fraud. You still have to do your due diligence. Faster payments just give access for criminals, once you've given them access, a way to move the funds faster. That's it. It doesn't equal faster fraud. But it all does come down to, like in this case, it's know your customer. And what, what is there that can be done? What do you see being done out there in the industry that can help protect financial institutions that are onboarding companies, whether they be legitimate or not, being able to identify them, being able to also, if I'm working with somebody, I've got an existing relationship, what should I do or what is available? And you know, what do I need to be looking at as far as future trends to make sure I'm working with good people, that these really are a good customer? Whew. Well, uh, it's a real easy, simple answer, and uh, that would be called sarcasm where I come from. Okay. So in terms of future trends, um, artificial intelligence, data science, uh, and, and technologies that help us do exist, um, uh, I'm going to slightly talk about, I'm going to slightly mention Argos risk in that, but uh, my problem of my situation happened in 2008, where it was almost impossible to get information on smaller companies that did not come from the company itself. Uh -huh. uh, now, with advances in technologies, uh, that problem is being solved more and more every day. We're not 100% uh, there, but uh, to give you an idea, so I have, uh, here at Argos Riz, I have access to information on 32 million businesses through our system. And I'm not saying that as a plug. I'm saying if you are a VP of operations who is killing themselves trying to stay up on due diligence, um, and you and I'm uh, using the term hope, prayer, and Excel spreadsheet all the time. And if if you're trying to do that and you're just overwhelmed, uh, take a look at uh, options out there. Google third-party risk intelligence, if you will, and that will show you the broad class of uh, uh, vendor classifications that would. Uh, enable you to get financial viability analysis on commercial third parties. So you have tools and technologies um, involved in that. So then the educational efforts, you know, the AAP has uh, program is, is, is still good. It's still viable, but it's also spawned other licensures and there's more educational opportunities than there were 10 years ago, especially more, uh, uh, uh uh, licensures around uh, risk awareness and risk mitigation practices. I would investigate those. And then the, I th every time you hear about a third party defrauding somebody, uh, either through a security breach or just, you know, or, or just flat out good old fashioned financial fraud or whatever, the environment, the environment that we're in and the financial services space gets more risk aware. And so, thankfully, um, the our executive levels and our upcoming executive levels, they have, a, I think, they have a better appreciation for risk than maybe generations past, who did everything on gut feel and and in the in, in a handshake and a smile. Mm -hmm. So, 
so that I think is helping us. So the last recommendation, so number one was look at technology. It's way more cost effective than you think. Number two, always continue to ed, uh, your, your education, especially around risk management, because risk management is like playing a game with your five-year-old. When the five-year-old starts to lose, they change the rules of the game. In risk management, just when you think you got risk mitigated, a new flavor comes up. That's that's just the nature of beast. And number three, build a coalition inside of your organization that includes your executive team so that you would have the authority and you would have the confidence that if you had to pull the plug on your best customer because they did, were not in compliance with your agreement, you could do that and feel confident that you're, you made the right decision. So have that culture of risk. Yep. And, you know, and I love the education aspect, too, of course, being the payments professor. That's one of the things I, I'm big about is the education. And you mentioned the AAP. Well, there's also now the APRP, the Accredited Payments Risk Professional Accreditation, that is also available from NACHA. And uh, I am an APRP, so I might be a little biased, but I know going through just the preparation for it, it is a risk uh, certification that has you look in all different payment channels and get to understand risk management and all those channels and I bring that up because we've really focused more on ACH origination but some other topics if, if we had time and I'm gonna probably have to bring you back one day Kevin to discuss these is we also now see cross-channel risk we see where somebody comes in on one Avenue to be able to work with a financial institution and starts committing risk or bringing in risk in higher areas on other payment channels we also see when it comes to your third parties you know there's the fourth parties or there's the nested third parties that are out there that people have to deal with and a lot of that it's hard to deal with but I, I love how your answers came out there you know the key things the takeaways I got from it I agree with look at the technology what's available to you now while the payments professor doesn't endorse any organizations or Argos risk is one of those that's out there that has technology that is available to help financial institutions know your customer a lot better and you hear KYC at all kinds of conferences KYC KYCC know your customers customers as well and the education one thing that kills me and it's why the payments professor was born was because uh, or the the company not the actual famous professor himself well maybe so was because education is one of the first things that I find financial institutions tend to cut the budget on they tend to pull back on and you've got to have education people are only as good as what they know and you know another thing like you said is building that culture but even better, and this is where I thank you, Kevin, is it's the experience. It's what did you learn even when something went bad and being able to admit to it and share that with others. I think if we had more transparency in the industry because I too know of some fraud cases, but I can't talk about them because, you know, they were in a past life, non-disclosure agreements, all that. And I think if more people would come out and say, hey, this is what has happened like you have, and this is what we learned, then we know, well, this is what we can do next time. And this is what we can do to prevent it. Because everybody's a good customer until they're not. But like we saw in your case, one bad customer took down an entire company, which can affect a financial institution. And in some cases, I've seen millions of dollars in fines actually lever leveraged against a financial institution. But that concludes today's podcast. Kevin, any closing comments before we say goodbye to everybody? Uh you know, just in general, if you if risk management is uh, under your area of responsibility, you are not alone. Uh, there's communities out there. There's resources available to you. If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel frustrated, that's 
par for the course. We all have those moments at, uh, at times. But if you ever um, if you ever need help, if you ever ever want someone to talk to, just to talk it out, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to. Uh, uh, share your experience. Feel free to hear yours. Uh, again, Kevin Sasser in Atlanta, Georgia uh, at Argos Risk. All Thanks right. I well, really thank appreciate you, it. Oh, thank, thank you, Kevin. Um, I'm the Payments Professor. You guys can always find me on LinkedIn. You can find me by also sending me emails, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com, or you can message me on LinkedIn. If there's any topics that you would like to have addressed in the banking industry, you know, we've got a lot of topics we've had on the show, a lot of topics that are still coming on the show, where we talk about regulatory risk, we talk about processing risk, exceptions, what do we need to do to handle those exceptions. We're diving into area two of faster payments on a regular basis. We're even talking about the cannabis industry when it comes to banking. All those topics, if you want to hear about it, let me know. I will definitely reach out and get people on the show to come on and discuss them. Everybody, though, thank you for attending. Look forward to having you on future sessions. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.